Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul on the first full day that foreign tourists who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 were permitted to travel to the U.S. pledged to help the state's tourism industry to recover by providing nearly a half a billion dollars in grants. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. Hochul at an event at New York City's Museum of Natural History, attended by business and union leaders, says the economic future of the city and state are tied to the tourism industry. The only way we're going to say that New York is truly back is when the tourism industry is back as well. I believe they are interconnected. Broadway shows have reopened and sporting events are back for fully vaccinated patrons. But Hochul says the tourism industry and its hundreds of thousands of related jobs is still far behind its pre-pandemic levels. A report by the state controller finds the tourism industry lost $60 billion due to COVID-19. The Natural History Museum's attendance and revenues declined by 40 percent since COVID-related shutdowns began in March of 2020. Hotel occupancy is down 25 percent statewide, Hochul says, 30 percent in New York City. The hotels are not back. Uh, our tourism-related businesses like charter buses that used to tra- transport people from the city across the state to Niagara Falls, they're not back. There are the, off, the cleaners of the hotels. I mean, there's so many jobs that are still not back yet, and we cannot be blind to this any longer. We cannot just say they'll be back tomorrow, just keep holding on. People have been holding on a long time since they lost their extended unemployment benefits back in September. Hochul says the $450 million in funding will include $100 million in incentives for restaurants, hotels, and tour guide companies to hire back workers more quickly. Employers who keep those workers on for six months would receive a $5,000 bonus. Another $100 million would be in the form of direct payments to 36,000 affected workers. The governor says she will propose in her 2022 state budget taking a $200 million grant from the pandemic small business recovery fund for small business ventures that were created just before or during the pandemic and are not eligible for existing funds. $25 million would fund a marketing campaign to bring conventions back to New York. And finally, another $25 million would expand the I Love New York tourism campaign to target select foreign countries to bring back even more tourists. Hochul says an added incentive for visitors is that New York City, once the world's epicenter of the pandemic, has an infection rate of less than 1%. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Well, as the U.S. reopened its land borders to fully vaccinated non-essential travelers earlier this week, cross-border interests in New York's North Country applauded the move, but they also don't expect a flood of Canadians traveling south due to the requirements the Canadian government is keeping for travel back into the country. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains. On August 9th, Canada opened its land border to U.S. travelers vaccinated against COVID-19. A number of measures are still in effect, including mandatory COVID-19 testing before travelers can enter Canada. 
Monday's reopening of the border in both directions is a welcome and substantial step that will have a number of positive impacts, according to North Country Chamber of Commerce President Gary Douglas. He is very happy that after a year and a half the border will open, but adds there's still a problem for travelers. The U.S. has made it pretty easy for Canadians to come in. It's pretty much back to normal as long as you're vaccinated. Any Canadian who's vaccinated can come to the border with that evidence and they'll be asked a couple of questions and unless there's a spot check occasionally, they'll be allowed on through pretty much like they always would have been. However, uh, a Canadian visitor can have a very easy time coming into the U.S., but before they turn around and go back home, they have to have a test for COVID and that test has to have been done within 72 hours of their uh, coming to the border to return to Canada. State Assemblyman D. Billy Jones, a Democrat whose 115th district abuts the Canadian border, is also happy the border is open, but echoes concerns about Canadian barriers. Canadian travelers, they still have to have a test within 72 hours, and that can be burdensome and expensive for them. So we're not going to get that leisure traveler, so that's still a barrier. We're still working on that. Happy to see some progress made, but we need to keep pushing. And also, we have many of our neighbors and our friends, me and myself, that want to go across that border, and there's still that testing requirement. Because around here in the North Country, it's tough to get a test. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York's 21st District released a recorded statement as the U.S. opened its border to Canada. She noted people worked hard on a bipartisan basis to get the border open. We want to make sure that this border reopening is as smooth as possible. I will continue to work with our Customs and Border Protection officers, as well as hear feedback from my constituents as to the reopening process. And we also will work to continue to strengthen our U.S.-Canadian economic ties and our broader friendship and cultural ties that are so important to the North Country. Town of Plattsburgh Supervisor Michael Cashman was on the interstate on Monday and says it was heartening to see numerous Quebec plates on cars traveling south. People are coming down here now. You know, we need to continue to see more recalibration uh, regarding the, the policies and the parity between the two countries. Um, but we hit the first milestone and that needs to be celebrated. New York Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat from the Buffalo region near the Ontario border, announced a new $450 million Bring Back Tourism, Bring Back Jobs initiative, coinciding with the reopening of the border. Tourism in our state, when we're doing well, is a $117 billion industry, third largest industry in our state, hundreds of thousands of jobs associated with it. It is the day we welcome back our international travelers. We have our Canadian tourists coming back. People in the North Country and West New York are very excited to start seeing license plates from Ontario and Quebec. It's been too long. And I can see Canada from my house. And, and, and I'm very excited about seeing more traffic on the bridges as we cross over. Travelers entering the U.S. must provide proof of vaccination and verbally provide their reason for travel at the land border checkpoint. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. In an over an 11-hour interview with investigators last July, former Governor Andrew Cuomo defiantly denied allegations he sexually harassed women and sparred with lawyers questioning him, accusing one of being out to get him. That's according to a transcript released yesterday. New York Attorney General and gubernatorial candidate Letitia James made public hundreds of pages of transcripts of interviews conducted by two independent lawyers hired by her office during their months-long probe of sexual harassment allegations against Cuomo. The women in these interviews conducted over several months accused Cuomo with misconduct laid out their horror stories of working for a boss who made comments about women's looks, asked questions about sex, and gave inappropriate touches and kisses. And we know that the criminal charges in Albany County are now up in the air because of the Albany County District Attorney and the Albany County Sheriff's difference on how the charges should have been filed. Well, that's right. We do know that David Soares was not happy with Craig Apple, the sheriff, who didn't even come to him when he was doing his investigation while Soares was doing his own investigation. But we also know that Cuomo is a fighter. Look, if you do the deed, you're going to pay the price. I think one of the things that is good about all of this happening is that everybody's put on notice that there are limitations on what you could and should do. These tapes show pure Cuomo, obfuscating, dodging, weaving, accusing, and it's not attractive for him. And I'm sure that's why Letitia James put this out for public view, because he doesn't look good when it's all out there. Yeah, and as you said, if he could find a way to run, he would, and this does not help in that effort. Well, that's right. Look... I still think the old saying, if you're going to kill the king, you better kill him. Because if he runs, he's going to be an unhappy guy. Do I think he has it within him, disgrace and all, to run another time? You look at his history, you look at what he has done and the comebacks he's pulled. Yeah, I think he certainly could come back. And that's why they're doing everything in their power, those people who are opposed to his actions, who are just going to be not satisfied until he is out and done. And that's why you're seeing the kinds of things you're seeing now. Well, Alan, this week you spoke with the head of the state conservative party in New York. His Mm -hmm. name is Gerard Jerry Kassar. Very interesting conversation. Of course, his big quote unquote win this election was the effort his party and the Republicans put into defeating the ballot proposals, which would have expanded voting in New York and dealt with redistricting. But his party put up a bunch of ads along with the Republican Party touring the state. And that was one of the highlights of the interview, sort of crowing about the fact that they were able to reach New Yorkers and defeat these ballot questions they didn't like. Well, you know, the conservative party in New York, by the way, he's very bright. He's a very bright man. And he appears to be nice when you're talking to him. And I love interviewing him for that reason. But I have to say, since we are on different sides of this, (laughs) he and I, I do understand that the ballot propositions were defeated, and I do understand why. And I don't think it's Ron Lauder's money that has done it necessarily. I think it's the fact that they were badly drafted. Prop 1 was almost impossible, even for me, and I studied this stuff all the time. And I had to read it three or four times to understand what the self-serving part of it was for the sitting politicians right now. So, as Harry the Doorman always said to me when I was a young political science student, just vote no. And that's the whole point. Just vote no is when you don't understand something, you vote no. 
and you know you had to turn over the ballot to get to the propositions. There was a lot going on that explains why it went down. Do I think it's only the conservative party and their ads and the money that got put up by the loudest? No, I think it's the intuition of the voter that this thing sticks like fish. Well, and you also spoke about something that the Republicans have used, if you look at the recent elections, perhaps to their favor, and that's going after the so-called woke crowd, the cancel culture, as the conservatives and Republicans like to talk about. And he spoke about that a little bit, because on his website, he says, there's hope. America gave the woke crowd a wake-up call, you know, and we have not shied away from talking about the battle in New York between the ultra-left, the progressives, and the more moderate to conservative Democrats. Well, it all depends on who's living in a particular district, AOC, uh, Cortez found out well that, you know, she could defeat one of the most important sitting congressmen um, at the time, and she did. And she won't lose in that district, in my opinion, although they will certainly try to oust her and her friends and the so-called squad of people who are on the left. This is a time when there are fights not only between Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, but also within parties in terms of running the party. The Republicans are quite clear. They're sticking with Trump. But the Democrats, as we have always said, David, circular firing squad, and that ain't good for them. Is it because, as they like to, the Democrats, that is, argue that, well, we're a very diverse party and we have a wider spectrum of views than the Republicans, and that's why you call us the circular firing squad? Well, to some degree, that may be true. You know, the Democrats have a different view of how democracy should be conducted. You take a look at the Republican Party and their voting in the Congress. Nobody deviates, even the ones you may think have it in them to do that. They won't do it. They stick together because they know that their voters will turn them out if they turn on Trump, for example. So they stick together, stick like glue. Well, Alan, another interesting issue, we haven't talked about it in a long time, which is physician-assisted suicide. And, you know, that's one of the conservative party legislative positions you spoke with Jerry Kassar about. They reject all efforts to encourage physician-assisted suicide, but it is a serious issue and worth discussion, certainly. It certainly is, and I'm certainly for it. I think when somebody wants to depart this world under the right conditions and with the right protections, it certainly is what we should be doing. This is something that has grown in popularity, and it's sort of silly in a way, because if somebody wants to kill themselves, they will. You don't need a law to do that. But what should happen is that families and sensitivities should all be protected. And while physician-assisted suicide is rejected by many, including religion, of one kind or another. It is very important that if people are suffering terribly, I'm not talking about mental illness, I'm talking about physical problems, that they be allowed to depart. I think that it is a very important subject. Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments is, you know, your dog Murray or my cat Winston, yep. you know, we would do everything we could to keep them from long-term pain if we could put them to rest. Exactly. And if you put protections in, which they do, you have to see this many doctors, this many psychiatrists, this, you know, I mean, it's almost ridiculous when you realize that all these famous people have committed suicide. They get themselves some pills, they, they take them and they're gone. This is not something you need a law for, but it has become a very sensitive subject because there's always the problem people cite of pushing mama from the train in order to get her assets. 
Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Chartalk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. A report issued this week finds that older rural New Yorkers have poor access to health care, nutritious food, and high speed internet. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. The AARP says more than a million rural New Yorkers are over the age of 50, and their numbers are growing. In Disrupt Disparities, Addressing the Crisis for Rural New Yorkers 50-plus, AARP suggests what it sees as achievable solutions. The report finds the pandemic and the rapid aging of the rural population are exacerbating disparities rural New Yorkers have long faced in accessing health care, high-speed Internet, telehealth, and support for unpaid family caregivers. Democratic State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli says although the state has taken steps to make broadband available to most New Yorkers, there is still a digital divide in rural parts of the state. What we've really found during the pandemic is that high-speed connections are an imperative for economic development and equal opportunity. Our analysis found many predominantly rural areas remain underserved by broadband infrastructure. In addition, approximately one in three New York households with income less than $20,000 lacked access to broadband at home. The report gives an example. 99% of people living in Manhattan and in Albany, Monroe, and Erie counties have access to high-speed Internet versus just 24% in Hamilton County. State Office for the Aging Director, Greg Olson. I live 10 miles west of downtown Albany, and it's apple trees and farms and lack of broadband, uh, lack of service infrastructure, lack of capacity, and certainly uh, workforce challenges. So, you know, it's not unique to the many places we think of in the North Country or the Southern Tier or Central New York. Uh, you could be living in an urban county that is also quite heavily uh, rural. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee with the Brookings Institute says COVID-19 transformed the way we live from analog to digital mode. We have to understand that the digital challenges that existed among seniors were present prior to this pandemic and will continue to evolve as this new normal becomes digital. I write in my book about this death of analog. That analog service when I was working in Hamilton, New York, where people in the town would come over to Ames on Saturdays and shop and bring in kids and others to pick up stuff at that local store. And now, if you're not connected to the internet, not just like my folks that I interviewed across the country said the Facebook, because that's not the internet. <laughs> but if you're not connected to the internet, you're not able to engage, I think, in life's course. The mandatory things that allow you to eat, to sleep, to live, and to have better care. State Senator Rachel May represents the 53rd District, which includes most of Syracuse, parts of Onondaga and Oneida counties, and all of Madison County. The Democrat says New York's Medicaid global spending cap that the Cuomo administration pursued for over a decade has created many of today's long-term care workforce issues. 
She supports legislation to repeal the cap. We've had a 2% spending cap while the actual number of people on Medicaid has been growing far faster than that. So it's really created inequities. We also heard about the insupportable pressures on nursing homes and assisted living facilities because of all the ever-changing guidance they were receiving in the uh, early stages of the pandemic and the burdensome reporting requirements that were absorbing way too much staff time. Uh, managers were leaving. Uh, it was just, it, it caused a lot of problems. I'm hopeful that the new administration in Albany and the new head of the Department of Health will have this in mind and try to try to ease those burdens on those facilities. The AARP report proposes increasing access to telehealth technology, equipment, and training, equalizing home high-speed internet utilization across all ages and geographies by 2025, subsidies for low-income older rural New Yorkers for devices, and subsidies for companies and municipalities to build and operate high-speed internet services where private investment is prohibitive. There's a link to the report at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. As the nation honored veterans this week, two veterans were honored last week at the biannual Honor of Living Veterans Ceremony in Albany. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel was there and filed this report. The ceremony Thursday at Crossgates Mall included a crowd of veterans, friends, and family members who came to recognize Penny Lee Deer and Hartley Willie Williams. Deer is a 65-year-old veteran who enlisted in the Army at age 19 and served in the Gulf War. After her active duty, she founded Mind, Body, Soul Penny, Support Our Troops, Arts for Vets, and Listening Library all of which are programs to help veterans after service. Williams, 87, enlisted in the Air Force at 19 and served in the Korean War. Known as Willie, he participated in airborne electronics navigation equipment repair during his service and moved to Antigua, where he was the Rotary president. He returned to Albany County to retire with his wife. The ceremony, hosted by Albany County, included a flag ceremony when a color guard raises and lowers the flags before and after the event. Elected officials thanked the two honorees for their service. When Deer first enlisted, she was in the Women's Army Corps before it integrated into the Army in 1978. It was from 1975 to 1995, and I was in Desert Storm. Uh, Desert Shield, but I also I'm kind of like a living fossil in that I was went through all the Cold War watching uh, Soviet Union dissolve and uh, making sure that that's all uh, and then we went on to Desert Storm and, and they changed the enemy on me. She first started in the Army's post office before transferring into intelligence work. She was stationed in Arizona. They needed intelligence and so I reclassified to something, it's a military and um, 
order of battle, it was called back then, an intelligence analyst, and that's a collaborative of bringing all the different intelligences together. It might be imagery, humans, where we're actually talking to people, um, SIGINT, listening to people, command and control. And so my job was to take all that information, put the puzzle together, and tell the commander, in, in this case it was 7th Corps Commander, uh, General Franks, um, what he can expect on his battlefield. Even after leaving the military, service members remained on her mind. She founded several organizations to help veterans acclimate to civilian life. So many of our returning veterans have trouble reintegrating into our community. And I believe it's because they don't have a mission. They don't have a reason for being. I know that with Arts for Vets, for instance, Support Our Troops Committee, that is my mission. I start at 5 o'clock in the morning and I tell them that this is what we're going to do today or this is what we're going to do in six months. We have to prepare for this. I have a reason for being. And by me doing that, they see and then they now have their own tribe. They, only, they have their own collective. Democratic Albany County Executive Dan McCoy says he got the idea for honoring living veterans after attending so many ceremonies recognizing veterans posthumously. The Democrat and veteran says one of the hardest things he had to do when first elected was speak at such events. But when I started talking to men and women in the audience, and I'm like, oh, how'd you know the person? And they're like, I didn't. They helped me. They did something for me. And I'm like, well, that would have been nice if they're alive to hear that, you know, to know that people appreciate the influence they had on their life or helped them in the right direction. So after like the first two years, I'm like, I got to change this. At the first in-person ceremony since COVID-19 took hold, Deer added it was an honor to be recognized. I am overwhelmed. I asked for the chair because I'm like, my, my poor legs are going, um, it actually, I was supposed to be recognized two years ago, and then right before the pandemic, it was um, all closed down. This is Ashley Helpful. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2146. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino. <laughs>